So this morning, this is what we're talking about. We're going to be talking, and it relates really well to Susan, something that you just said when you were sharing. Um, courageously standing up for right and things that are true. And so what we see in scripture is what we see in life, that speaking truth to power means that heads may roll. And that's what we're talking about today. Not an easy one. So may we find courage. Let's pray. Lord, open our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that as your scriptures are read, as your word is proclaimed, we'll hear with joy what it is that you say to us today. Amen. Amen. All right, let's start with this. When we stand up for something that we believe to be right, what are the risks that we take? And this is not rhetorical. What are the risks that we take when we stand up for what we believe to be true or right? Are there any? Yeah. Go for it. Rejection. Violence. Okay. Violence. What else? Andrew, is that a hand? Did you I was just to say being judged by others. Okay. Being judged by others, right? Anything else? Death. You miss? Death. Loss. Loss. Okay. Good. I should have put these up on an easel for us to stare at the entire time. Because um, this, is, this is a tough one. This is what we're talking about. I remember Thursday, Corinne and I were driving in the car and we heard anyone the clash. I fought the law and the law won. Yeah. Um, that song came on and we were like talking about the, the lyrics to this song. Um, and it's like this song kind of made me think back to, uh, to what we're talking about today. That when we stand up to power, we're at risk. Right? And so I was thinking about like, when have I, I, I'm a person actually by nature, this is a little bit of who I am. Um, so I might get a little worked up today. We'll see. I'm going to try not to. I actually have no idea where we're going. Normally, I'm, that's not me. Normally, I know exactly where we're going. Uh, today, I'm not so sure, so we're going to find out. Um, but my earliest memory, the one that I, the furthest back I could go um, in standing up for some sort of injustice was like my first, I think it was my first or second day of middle school. And so I moved here from Ohio going into middle school. So when I started in middle school, I, I didn't know anybody, all right? Um, and I remember this really, really well. Uh, one of my very first days, not knowing anyone, I knew there was this really smart kid in my English class. His name was Jeff. I barely knew the guy. This guy's a really easy target for teasing, right? I mean, like, I could go on with the list, but we don't need to. Really easy target. Right before the class starts, this bully guy that I'd never seen before approaches him. Everyone kind of gathers around to watch, you know, how that goes in middle school. Um, and he knocks all the books out of this kid's hands. His papers go flying everywhere. He hits the kid, his glasses fall off, he had some big coat bottle glasses, like, couldn't see, he's lying on the ground, his papers are everywhere, and this, like, this guy spit on him, right, while he was lying on the ground. And, man, I remember this like it was yesterday. I'm like, I thought, you know, I'm a fairly tolerant person, but I couldn't sit by and watch this happen. So I, like, jumped in, grabbed the guy, pulled him off, um, and literally got saved by the bell. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, this kid was definitely not going to fight, and... The bully guy probably would have beat me up. Um, and it made me think, because what happened to me in this incident is I made one really good friend on that day. But I also made quite a few enemies of people that had no idea who I was. I was like a new kid, right? So there's a whole group of people uh, that I didn't get on the good side for standing up for this poor dorky kid. Um, I made a bunch of enemies, which actually contributed. When I look back to this year, my life is the worst year I ever had was moving here, not knowing a single person and trying to go to middle school. Um, and it was this incident that kind of propelled me on to having a really bad year. Like, I had to deal with the consequences for standing up for this kid for an entire year. And this is what made me think about that. You know, today's text is this 
story of this twisted birthday party that we're going to hear about, Herod Antipas, the son of King Herod the Great. And when I read it, I couldn't help but think about this challenging paradox that we hear in the gospel. Listen to these two things, and just how would you put these two things together, right? This is what Jesus said in John's gospel, chapter 8. Jesus said, if you continue in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will what? Set you free. Set you free. That's what Jesus said. Now, what we're going to see is something maybe a little different than that, right? John the Baptist, like the great prophets before him, he tells the truth. Our story is going to teach us what the consequences of truth-telling was for him. Are we familiar with the phrase, heads are going to roll? We are, right? Yeah. Like, we don't need to describe the origin of that word, the guillotine, right? We don't need to go into too many gory details about it. The truth of the gospel is this. The truth may indeed set you free, but it also might get you killed, right? It might set you free, but it might get you killed. And this is the truth of this text. So let's listen for it as we hear Mark 6, 14 to 29. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some were saying John the baptizer has been raised from the dead, and for this reason these powers are at work in him. But others said it's Elijah, and others said it's a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, the name of Jesus, when Herod heard the name of Jesus, he said, it's John whom I beheaded raised from the dead. For Herod himself had sent men who arrested John and bound him, put him in prison on account of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife because Herod had married her. For John had been telling Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to kill him. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing he was a righteous and holy man, and he protected him. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he liked to listen to him. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his courtiers and officers and leaders of Galilee. When his daughter Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and the guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me whatever you wish, and I will give it. And he solemnly swore to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you, even half of my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, What should I ask for? And she replied, The head of John the Baptist. Immediately she rushed back to the king and requested, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was deeply grieved, yet out of regard for his oaths and for the guests, he did not want to refuse her. Immediately the king sent a soldier of the guard with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in prison, brought his head on a platter, and gave it to the girl. Then the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard about it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. They told her it was going to be tough. The word of the Lord. Back in Mark chapter 1, verse 14, we learned that John the Baptist, this forerunner to Jesus, Jesus' cousin, had been arrested. For six chapters, we have no idea why. We don't hear anything more of it. And the answer, the question that we should be asking is, why now? Like, why do we wait, why did Mark wait six chapters? And then why is this subject matter inserted right here? And the answer seems to be because the death of John is somehow tied to Jesus' expanding mission. This is what Mark wants us to see. He puts these things side by side deliberately to help us to think about them and the risk involved. And so this story takes place between Jesus, the first time Jesus took the twelve and he sent them out for mission on their own. And while they're gone, Herod removes John's head. Then the disciples come back. 
And so what this seems to be saying is this is the end of the innocence for Jesus' disciples. Like things are now about to get really, really real for them. Now there's four Herods mentioned in the New Testament. This one is uh, the second son of Herod the Great. His name was Antipas. He's the king of Galilee or Tetrarch from 4 BC during Jesus' lifetime until just after his death. And like his father before him, he's shrewd, he's exceedingly wealthy, and he is a ruthless, ruthless individual. And so this story, like any Game of Thrones people in here, this story reads like you. It's okay. <laughs> like no one's gonna admit it, but I see some like people like this. Like it's okay. This story, like Game of Thrones, is probably reading this stuff out of the Bible and making their episodes. Like it's just it's crazy um, how this this story reads like a soap opera, right? He falls in love with Herodias, the wife of his own half brother Philip. Now, in order to marry Herodias, he first has to abandon his wife, which he did. Now, later, the father-in-law, actually, this is great for dads, the father-in-law gets revenge on Herod later, but I, unfortunately, I don't have time to talk about it. Um, but I, I just, I think that's kind of cool. Um, <laughs> someday. <laughs> someday. Um, but Herod hears the name of Jesus, right? He hears the name of Jesus. And what he realizes right when he hears the name of Jesus is something really important. He realizes that severing John's head didn't silence his message. It's really important. He severs this head, and yet John is still speaking from the grave. And Herod is like, how is this possible? So, what is the message that got him killed? Simple. He criticizes the illegal, the immoral marriage of Herod to the, brother, uh, to the wife of his brother, Philip. And so I'm sure John probably recited the two commandments from Leviticus, which of course forbid the marrying of your brother's wife. But as we're talking about today, power doesn't take kindly to those who challenge it. Those who meddle, those who get in the way. People in power have done terrible things and will continue to do terrible things in order to maintain what they have. And so the first century Jewish historian, this guy's name was Josephus, um, once in a while I reference him. He also wrote about this same account that Mark is writing about, Antipas's heading of John. And so he reports that Herod was afraid of John's widespread influence over the people. He's trying to stop John from leading this uprising and revolt against him, and so he throws him in prison. Mark and Josephus are really telling, they're two sides of the same coin, telling the same story. They both attest to John's righteousness, character, and piety. They also both attest to Herod's ruthlessness and paranoia. So Herod has John arrested in order to silence public criticism. Not the first time we've heard about this. This happens all the time. And so the interesting part of the story is, I think, that Herodias wants John dead. This is just fascinating to me. Herod actually protects him. And so Herodias wants to kill him, but she can't because her own husband, the king, is protecting him. So I was like, what in the world is going on? And this is the, one of the weirdest stories I've ever heard. Herod's, Herod is actually hanging out with John in his prison cell. Isn't that strange? He's listening to John. The text says that he liked to listen to John. Like, don't you wish you knew what those conversations were like? This is the kind of stuff where I wish the gospel writers would include more detail. Like, you know John based on what we know. He's telling him the truth. He's telling him hard stuff. You know he's also telling you about Jesus, right? And wouldn't you like that stuff I like to know and questions I like to ask? Or I wonder if these conversations that they had actually had any positive effect on this maniac of a guy. Like, I have to believe that they did. 
And so while Herod Antipas is picnicking in this prison's cell with John, his wife is plotting John's demise. And so the occasion for the death is this great birthday celebration. So they invite all the upper crusts of Galilee, invited to this great birthday banquet. And in the story, it's kind of interesting because the guests, they never say anything. But their influence is felt in the story. And so Herod wants these rich and powerful guests to have the time of their life. Uh, her daughter, Herodias' daughter, which they call, by the way, in case people pick this up, they call her the daughter of Herodias too. It's a little mistake, sorry. Um, her name, uh, Josephus records her name as like Salome or something like that. It's just a weird little translation thing. Her daughter dances for the guests. And we have to use our imagination about what kind of dancing she was doing when he offers her up to half of his kingdom. Um, it's church, so don't make me spell it out. Um, but this is, real, this is real stuff. And so for her good work, he says, hey, whatever you want. Ask for whatever you want, I'll give it to you. She goes to her mom, she asks for advice. Mom says, I want the head of John the Baptist, and I want it right now. And so he's caught in this web of his own making, right? Scripture says that he was, this, well, this is the most fascinating thing I learned, that he was deeply grieved. You look at the Greek word for deeply grieved that's reused here. It's only used in one other time in the New Testament. This is the most shocking thing. I'm, it, this word is used for Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? Jesus is so grieved and is hurting so bad, right? We think about this, like he's sweating droplets of blood. He's grieved to that point. Herod is deeply grieved because of the position that he's gotten himself in. He's doesn't know what to do. He's caught in the web of his own foolishness. He made public oaths and promises, and now he's forced to do the thing that he doesn't want to do. He doesn't want to kill this right. He knows that John is a righteous and holy man. The man that Jesus said, if you remember Jesus' words, Jesus said John was a greater person than anyone born of a woman. Those are the words of the Lord. This is a great, great person. Herod knows it. And he's caught in this kind of web of his own making. And I was like, when I got finished studying this, I was like, what do we do with this story? You know, like, I agonized over this one. I actually thought about taking a vacation day and asking Dale. <laughs> um, and then I realized he was still out of town. Um, uh, I agonized a little bit more. I, like, I rewrote it. I threw stuff out. I have no idea what I'm going to do at the end. Um, here are the two most surprising things about the story of what make it so challenging. And this is really, really unique in all of the New Testament. Jesus doesn't appear or speak in this story. And there's, where's the good news? Like, honestly, if you, if you see something I don't, I want to switch places. Like, we, you can finish this, and I'll stop gladly take a seat. Because this is fascinating. Jesus doesn't appear or speak, and there is no good news found in this story. So, like, no good news and no Jesus is problematic for a preacher, right? So what do you do with this story. I, I thought quite a bit about it. I'm going to share a couple things uh, to finish. Things that I think make it important to mark. And some kind of implications about what kinds of things, where we could go with this today. And so this is what I thought of. First of all, this is just, I think, absolutely a fact. Like the story, I think, is meant to do this. It's meant to point us backwards, and then it's meant to point us forwards. And so it points us backward because the very beginning of Mark's Gospel Mark links John and Jesus from verse 2. Chapter 1, verse 2, John is all, the whole beginning of Mark's gospel is all about John the Baptist. And so what they're saying is these two, they're linked from the very beginning of the gospel story. 
And then it points us forward because John's death is this foreshadowing, this precursor of Jesus' own death. And so what Mark is saying is from this point on, things are about to get, they're, they're getting real. Things have changed because of this. And so there are a lot of things, there's a lot of good news we could talk about when it comes to, uh, to Jesus' death. Uh, but actually, I resisted the temptation to do that. Uh, instead, I'm going to try to leave you with kind of a lasting uh, thing that I think is one last kind of impression. But the Bible scholar Dale Bruner said something that I think is kind of sets this up well. What he said about it is the best thing I read when I was studying it. He said, with John, there are no sacred cows in his herd. I thought that was kind of interesting. To me, that was thought-provoking. He didn't read the polls before he was speaking and acting. And he wasn't protecting any special interests. He stood up, he told the truth, regardless of the consequences. He was a guy that's just known for standing up and doing what's right. And so his courage was costly. Jesus' disciples were learning that the world would no longer be a safe place for them anymore. This is what Jesus' disciples were learning. And so the last impression, to me, I think it's an important one. Um, it really made me think. We've already heard about Herod's crazy birthday party. But what about... Jesus, what about the party that Jesus is going to host? A banquet. We should know this story. Those of us that have heard it before, Luke, tell, Luke 14 tells us about it. Let's finish by contrasting the two things. In Luke 14, this is the party that God is going to host. This dinner banquet is being set up. The servant sends out all the invitations, and one by one, the rich and the powerful refuse to come to the banquet. They have to make excuse after excuse as to why they're not coming. Now they, the master's a little bit angry. He sends out the servant again. And he says, go to the other side of the tracks. Go to the other side of the tracks. Invite, this is the quote, the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. The servant invites all those people. He comes back. He reports, yeah, you know what? The poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame, they're all coming. And there's still plenty of room at your table. And this is the thing I find to be really instructive. Even more instructive than that is you've got to dig a little bit. But what he says next is he says, now go way outside the town to the lanes and the roads. Two words that most of us would be like, yeah, okay, go out to the country roads and find out whoever's there. What does that mean? In scripture, I'll tell you what it means. It means the wrong people. It means the outsiders. It means the people that nobody wants at the table. This is who the master sends the invitations to. The outsiders, this is a reference to people outside of Israel, right? These are the wrong people to be invited. And so God is throwing this party, and he's inviting those who can't stand on their own. Those whose voices are not heard or rarely heard. He's inviting those who do not belong at the table. And so God's inviting those on the margins of society to this party, and I can't help but wonder, if we contrast these two parties, are we being encouraged to stand with and for people on the margins so that as my, one of my heroes today, Father G of Homeboy Industries, is fond of saying, the margins get erased. When we stand with and for those folks, the margins get erased. Maybe we're being encouraged to do that. If these are the people that Jesus is inviting to his party, maybe this is a clue for us as to who we're supposed to be standing with and for. I heard this story that made me think this week about this. It made my stomach churn. Some of you may have heard it. It's a story about a 91-year-old man visiting his relatives from Mexico. You hear this one? It's unbelievable. 91-year-old man, he comes twice a year to visit his family. 
He walks through the neighborhood like he does all the time when he's here visiting. And this time, he's met by a woman with a concrete block. And she beats him within an inch of his life, and she actually encouraged, she had three other men, passers-by, encourage them to join her in beating this guy with bricks, yelling at him, go back to Mexico. I talked about this incident with our small group this past Friday. Real, this one really gets me. This is the world that we live in, right? This isn't somewhere far away. This is the world that we live in. Now, my small group consists of four guys. We're from different churches, and we have different political viewpoints. And one of the things I was saying was, like, if we can't talk about issues that have political implications, if we can't talk about these things in a small group of people who are trying to follow Christ, like, where can we talk about these things? And one of the guys brought up a really good question. He said, well, what's the church's role in all this? And that made me think. I went home and I've been thinking about it for a day and a half, and he was saying that the church can get so self-focused, so fearful um, about making people upset that it never deals with some of the most pressing things and issues of our day. And that made me think, he's right. Like, if you look at a group of people like this, also people, differing political viewpoints represented in the room, there's no doubt about that. What is the church's role? The church's role, we have to think about things like kingdom values and living by those kingdom values, living the way of Jesus. If we can't stand up and talk about these things in this place, where can we talk about these things? So there was one thing that made me think that I'm absolutely certain of. Like John, what this story says to me is, John, would John not stand up and talk about this? I'm telling you. There's no doubt that a guy like John would stand up and speak out against brick-wielding hate mongers. Am I wrong about that? This isn't a political thing. Because it's not the way of Jesus. Hate-wielding brick mongers are not the way of the kingdom. These are not kingdom values. And so the question is, that, and this, this is the question that, that we're going to answer it differently. All of us are going to answer this question differently. What are we going to stand up for? Where are we going to lend our voice? What's what is it, what's passionate, where are we, you know, where, where's the Holy Spirit speaking to us, asking us, what are we passionate about, where we stand up and lend our voice, and we're all going to answer that question differently, you're going to answer it differently than I am, but what John the Baptist says is, one, is part, of, is part of who we are, that Christians for centuries have stood with those who can't stand, they've lent voices to those without voices that are not heard. Christians for centuries have stood up to power. They've paid the ultimate price for it. Um, and so we know what John says is, one, it's part of who we are, and two, there's risk involved in doing it. And so the thing we're definitely going to need is may God grant you the courage that you need to follow Jesus more closely, well, however you answer that question, which will be different for all of us. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, even when it's challenging, even when it's hard. Uh, God, we thank you that you speak to us through it, and God, may you grant us the courage that we need to follow you more closely, to be more conformed to the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. God, help us to live by your values, and give us the courage to stand up when we need to. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Amen.